as for the interdisciplinary stuff, uh, A, you, you couldn't ever teach climate change without some level of that because it is the biggest topic in the world and it includes touches on practically every aspect of human civilization. And that being the case, you have to put it in some sort of context. Puccio know when he came to the studio today that he would be entering a dimension of time and space, of light and sound, a dimension called at WCSU. So thank you to Rod Serling for guest announcing the award-winning podcast that explores all dimensions of Western Connecticut State University. Mr. Serling, you may know, is the creator of the Twilight Zone, and it was great to have him here. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, I, it was a coup. <laughs> Everyone's taking over your show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to concentrate on science at WestCon today, not science fiction, with Rada Krell, again, bigfooting me out the door so she can interview <laughs> Mitch Wagner, WestCon biology professor and world-renowned expert on climate change. We're also going to talk to Rada, rhymes with cicada, about the coming plague of the insect that will soon descend upon us or, or some parts of yeah. the country. <laughs> exactly. Co-host Jacqueline Bonomo got called into an extra shift at the bridal shop and decided she didn't have time for us, but she'll be back next week, and Pete and I will discuss upcoming events on campus. And she can yell at you about uh, how to casting aspersions name. on her character. Yes, yes, plus how to <laughs> pronounce her name. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> we'll go through that every week. It'll be a it'll be a segment. Yes. So that's not a bad lineup, right, Pete? No, it's great. I'm not really sure about the cicadas, actually. Our producer, Scott Volpe, is all hot on these bugs coming out of the ground. So we had to add them to the show. But really, they've been doing this for thousands of years. What's the big deal? I don't know. I think they're pretty cool. Yeah. And of course, Rada rhymes with cicada. Yeah. So she's all over it. Yeah, when I was a kid, my neighbor, um, it was my neighbor who we called aunt and uncle. It was her father who we called Gumpy Jim, who was like kind of a grandfather for us. Mm -hmm. And he got me uh, a subscription to Ranger Rick mm -hmm. magazine, which was like a kid's animals and, and uh, climate and everything magazine mm -hmm. that my parents then picked up after the year. And I ended up getting this thing for like... I don't know, well into my teens, I was still getting this like kids animal magazine. It's great. I kept them all. And now my son looks at them. And, but I learned all about cicadas then. So that was the 33 wow. years ago. Yeah. And you still so, remember it. Oh yeah. I'm Paul Steinmetz with Pete Puccio. And here's Dr. Rada Krell interviewing Dr. Mitch Wagner. Um, hi, Paul. Thanks for having two scientists on the show today. Uh, you've been kind enough to allow me to uh, bring my colleague, uh, Dr. Steven, better known as Mitch Wagner from the Science Building. Uh, what's, what's interesting about Mitch is he and I have a surprising amount of similarities. We have a lot in common. Uh, we happen to both be from the Midwest. He's from Missouri and I'm from Iowa. Uh, we both studied biology and 
Russian language. So we both speak a little bit of Russian and we occasionally uh, see each other and say Zdrastvidya. <laughs> and we're in the hallways of the science building. We both spent time in Russia in the 1990s, which was a very um, you know, unusual time to be in the country. We both uh, have interest in entomology and uh, sad entomology, and I'm an entomologist, as you know, so um, we have a lot in common. Uh, but Mitch uh, has, uh, he's become in our department um, the champion and the specialist related to climate change and teaching students about climate change. And so um, we're not going to talk about entomology today, even though we could enjoy that for the full time. Um, but I really uh, wanted to bring Mitch here to talk a little bit about recent work again with climate change and how he's brought that to uh, both a series of courses that he does as, um, on climate change and then more recently um, a, a course that's, be, that's had huge popularity for the first time being offered, um, a climate change course that is intended for um, any student at West Point and a way for students to get a science credit but also do that in a really relevant way by studying something um, that is impacting especially young people and will impact young people um, into the future. So um, with that, welcome, Mitch. Thank you. Thank for you today. Um, do you want to start by just chatting a little bit about your, I guess your sort of your revelation or your pivot from, you know, sort of the traditional biology classes you were teaching to um, getting into teaching your climate courses? Well, I was always kind of weird. I was, you know, <laughs> I, I was always kind of the odd person in the biology department. Now, this is my 25th year, so I've been here for a while. And because I was interested in other things other than science um, in an academic way, you know, the Russian stuff. And I've always loved earth science, and, and I can probably credit a really good high school teacher for that. And, um, and you know, I, my, my uh, background in biology is so diverse from fish and wildlife at the University of Missouri to uh, stream ecology for my master's in Alaska and soil ecology. And it, you know, it all seemed to fit. When I started, was doing my PhD, the concern about climate change in academia was beginning to build. And so we were discussing it a fair bit. Not everyone was quite certain that it was happening yet, even in Alaska, but now there's, there's really no doubt, uh, especially, especially up there. And so um, it's something that I've always introduced, put into uh, my ecology courses that I taught. And then, I don't know, 2008, 2009, 10, whenever it was, people started to ask me to give talks on climate change. And so I think the first one was 2008. And um, to date, I've done 106 of them, at the best I can count. You know, and it... I'm, I'm averaging about 20 a year. Um, people are interested, people are concerned. Um, and so um, about 2010, 2011, 2012, I, I got a chance to offer a class specifically about it for biology majors. And then I started teaching honors classes and I have two of my three honors classes are specifically about climate change. And then Pat, our um, our chair last year, um, and I 
came up with the idea of putting together a gen ed class, general education class with lab with no prerequisites. So business majors and, and so on could take it. And I'm working my way through it because I've never done a lab in uh, on climate change. So I've had to figure out how to best do that. And there are some kind of traditional manipulating things with your hands sort of labs. And there'll, there'll be some more discussion labs. I think that's what's going to be the meat of it. Mm -hmm. no, that's really cool. So this, um, yeah, so this is the first semester that mm -hmm. Westman has offered your non-majors um, climate change course with a lab, which again, I think is really unique. And um, so the so you have, I think, 22 students, is that right? It's 20, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, can, I can't remember. I have three, I have three classes going on right now, and I can't yes. remember. They're all about 16 to 20 and I can't remember which is which. Yeah, it's definitely head spinning. And yeah. um, so and so who has it been, you know, mm -hmm. who signed up for it? Like what what are their majors? You know, what what's the breadth of students that have been interested in it? I think it is 20 now that you mentioned it. And I think five of them are biology majors. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, two of them are meteorology majors. Mm -hmm. Which and and one of them is a senior in meteorology, so he knows the stuff, and he has been helping me to um, polish how I describe some of the particular things, uh, uh, phenomena, meteorology, so that I'm doing it more clearly and more accurately. Yeah, and yeah. it's been a, it's been a great it's, he's been a great help, oh, James Cantapio. Um, and then there are there's one chemistry major who's interested in atmospheric chemistry. Well, There's a bunch of business majors. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to have those business majors. So yeah. So how are the business majors like? What is their kind of mindset that they're bringing to the topic? Are they doing this because they know it's important for, you know, their for the economic future, or are they just um, you know personally interested, or what? Yeah. How. How do you think they arrived at coming to your class? Well, I, I ask everyone uh, early in the class what, why they're taking the class. What is they're interested in? Um, one of the things about the class is that it offers credit in one of the in information literacy, which is one of the requirements for general education that <clears throat> all students have to take in some class, right? Mm -hmm. And there, up till now, there's been relatively few information literacy classes that satisfied that requirement. So I think I'll get some students who primarily just need to fill that. Uh, some of them, um, you know, it was available. It was in the right place at the right time for them. And some of them, they're just interested in coming in. Um, I've been talking to business students at, in our business uh, school for Quite a while, one of the management professors has invited me over for four or five guest lectures in her management classes. And so I always get to try out some ideas. There are some, some realities of climate change having to do with <clears throat> uh, the stranded assets that uh, fossil fuel companies are going to have once they can no longer pump and sell everything that they own the rights to. Um, and what effect that's going to have on their bottom line. I mean, after all, if you have, 
you know, if you have assets, you have you, you know, and they're not all companies. Some of them are uh, petro states like Nigeria and Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. And you have all these assets that you own the rights to sell. And some dorky professor comes along and says, dude, you've got to leave 80 percent of that stuff in the ground or the world is cooked. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you think those 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 corporations are going to are, are reacting to that? Mm-hmm. They're kind of freaking out right now because the truth of it is the numbers are real. The mm-hmm. the um, you know, the reality is that the amount of fossil fuels that is in the holdings, financial holdings of companies in petrostates vastly um, exceeds what we can safely burn without cooking us. Yeah. Well, that brings up a good point. So you're, you know, working with young people, especially right now, young people who are already kind of stressed out because of what's going on in our country and the way that they, you know, that their lives have been changed by, by COVID. So when you're talking about this sort of heavy stuff that, again, affects their future more than ours, how do you balance, um, you know, the scientific reality with um, the potential for causing emotional distress <laughs> not making them just come out and be really distressed like I have <laughs> I have given that very question much thought over the years and one of the, the things that I always do is I always glean information by the way people react to the way I explain things and um, it is basically empathy mm-hmm. humanity, Decency, you know Albert Camus in in his novel on the plague, which is so very topical these days. Uh, his main character, a doctor who's trying to to deal with all these plague um, victims, basically says the way you deal with this is decency. And um, so you know I I try to do that too. You know it's a matter of okay this is the humanity of it. This is, there's the financial considerations, but there's also, what do you do with the six, the 16 million people in Bangladesh who live within a meter of sea level? Okay. What do you do with, you know, um, residents of the citizens of two or three island nations that will be uninhabitable in a matter of a few, of a few decades? I mean, what do you do with Bangkok? which is, you know, right at sea level and subsiding. Do, as you're teaching about all of this, and, and like, so I think to be clear to anyone that's listening, is that um, you're, you're, it's you, as a biology professor, fundamentally, your ability to bring in literature, uh, you know, anthropology, <laughs> economics <laughs> is, rel- is, you know, relatively unique. You're, you know, this multiple, multiple, you know, multidisciplinary approach to thinking about this in a really integrative way. So, w- but when you're talking about these like social issues of how you manage like displaced people and um, do, do you ever feel like the students are overwhelmed by acknowledging that's part of their future of what, will need to be managed in their generation? Or do you think the do you think that the knowledge that you're giving them helps them to feel empowered to, you know, to be better prepared potentially? Depends on the kid. Depends on the student. 
can't shouldn't call them kids because they're not all kids. I know. Um, it depends on the student. You know, I I remember making students cry a few times early on, and mm-hmm. I've over the over the years figured out how to leave them, um, have them leave the class with determination rather than helplessness because helplessness is not good for anybody. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, as for the interdisciplinary stuff, uh, a, you, you couldn't ever teach climate change without some level of that because it is the biggest topic in the world. And it includes touches on practically every aspect of human civilization and that being the case, you have to put it in some sort of context. And right. I, I'm one, like I say, that's what makes me weird, I think. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is that I can try out, I mean, that's the benefit of teaching honors courses. I teach three honors courses, my trilogy, I call it, and I rotate and I usually teach one a year. And um, like I say, two of them are specifically about climate change and they're full of the very brightest of our, many of the very brightest of our students. And um, I can try out ideas on them. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, I, they're, the, they're, the, they're the courses um, that are most likely to have future PhD students and things like that. And so I can really try out ideas on them and see how they work. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell me if they don't work. Right. Well, and I think you know. and that's where you also can feel like what you're, you know, the, the information and the discussions you're having are likely to have like a lasting impact as they launch their own careers and they'll have part of this education as part of their foundation too. I have um, been told that, yes. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, and so, so you teach about climate change and like you were saying, your newest class, it has a lab component. So climate change does not happen in a three-hour lab period. <laughs> How do you do a lab on climate change? Like, what kind of activities are you doing? Because this is like a long process. And uh, you're probably not going out and digging up fossil fuels. Or whatever, so. Probably not. I have my syllabus here just so I don't forget to say something. Um, I There's a variety of things. You can't just do one thing. So, for instance... I uh, have them do uh, geological timelines in the hall. You saw that. Um, cool. Yeah, explain that because yeah. that was really effective. Well, you, what you do is you take um, you take type. I mean, you take cash register ribbon that I bought at Staples and spread out a, a stretch of it on, you know, a part a wall in the in the hallway of the science building that's the longest, you know, uninterrupted uh, one you have. And then the students figure out where on this timeline different events occurred, like formation of the Earth, formation of the moon on one end, the Beatles break up on the other end. <laughs> and then they find where all these other things occurred and, 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 and write them in proportional, you know, along the 4.6 billion year Earth history. And then I take them and show them where the Big Bang was, which is usually over in front of the elevator on the main floor on the <laughs> first floor. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those walk, you know, wow type, type things. Right. Um, it's like the human piece occurs in like the last, so this, yeah. this tape is along a, like what, I don't know, over a hundred, I don't know. What is that? Like a 80, 
feet or 100 feet of hallway. I've forgotten it. It's between yeah. two doors in, you know, in the in the science building. Yeah, and, so it's a big stretch. And mm -hmm. so this tape is like, is laid out there. And humans are what, in the last like centimeter of the tape? No. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. when you think about 4.6 billion years, we are just a blink. <laughs> well, in that 4.6 billion years, animals really haven't come into their own until 542, 43 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 12, the last 12% is where most of the, the animal action is. Mm -hmm. And that's like dinosaurs and the yeah. Cambrian explosion and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, no, other yeah. labs, I have them, you know, basically measuring how much water expands when you warm it up wow. and how much reflectivity you get off um, bright, shiny surfaces as a part to dusty surfaces and things like that. This week, I'll be doing a, uh, we're going to watch a, a a TV show on uh, the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl is an event in American history that is almost in living memory. I think um, only the very young at that time would still be around. But honest to God, my uncle, Thur my gr my my great uncle Thurbert and my great uncle Cecil, the mm -hmm. brothers of my grandparents or my grandfathers were Dust Bowl Lokis. And I have, you know, I knew Uncle Cecil and I think I met Thurbert at some point. So, I mean, it's, you know, secondarily a living memory and it is demonstrably a um, environmental climate disaster that caused Americans to hit the road. And, and uh, climate refugees are one of the things, one of the type of phenomenon, the, the things we're going to have to deal with going going forward. And there's going to be hundreds of millions of them. There are already tens of millions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And here is a precedent in American history of Americans leaving Oklahoma and, and Panhandle, Texas and wherever, and going to California and not being welcomed. Well, and it's, isn't it, it's like we forget so quickly because it really wasn't that much. <clears throat> And yet we just so quickly like 30s. want to move on and we forget that that the impact this had. It's kind of like going through the pandemic now that, right. you know, kind of our our acknowledgement of how devastating the pandemic is, even though it happened in the last hundred years, still, you know, we, we sort of we forget <laughs> in a very we very quickly forget. And so this, yeah, I think reminding the students of, you know, how uh, tangible, you know, these events are in terms of really affecting human lives is probably impactful for them. Another one we're going to do next week is is a case study on shifting baselines. There's certain phenomenon like changes in fish stock that the, uh, fishermen, ocean fishermen, uh, notice that occur over multiple generations of humans, so that by you get time you get to generation three. Those people experienced only their time, their little piece of all the big change that has occurred. And they don't really understand what happened to their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so as your, you know, the shifting baselines makes us not aware of all the change that is happening. Yeah. And that's that's a new thing in that's being discussed in 
in um, environmental psychology and other things as well. Environmental that. psychology. So that's a new term, right? Oh yeah, yeah. This is yeah. Yeah, we have a we have a we have we offer a class here, and I think Shane Murphy in the in the psych department offers a class. I yeah. did not even know that. That's that's uh, that seems like something that's emerged um, recently yeah. <laughs> in the past twenty years, probably. That's really interesting. Now, um, one more thing. Can I yeah, say one more thing about the lab? Yes, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, that is not this. It is um, what our last lab will be. Is they'll they're going to do a project, and their project is going to be to write a short essay, two or three page essay on what does climate change mean for your field of study, mm -hmm. and what does climate change mean for your future career, mm -hmm. and that'll be kind of the capstone to the class. So that if they're if they're management majors, you know, there are clear things that they will have thought of and so on. And then they'll present those in the lab to the other students. That's cool. That sounds like something that would be worth, you know, for students that are willing to share it, which could be really interesting to um, you know, to post or to share in some way um from WCSU, right? In terms of this is where our young people's heads are at, you know, our future people who are running mm -hmm. businesses and, you know, teaching and, you know, working in different fields, this is what they're thinking. <laughs> that could be actually really interesting to hear, hear what they what they think after they've been through this experience with you. So over the oh, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was gonna say over the years I've I've collected some of the best of the output of honor students. And mm -hmm. one of them was a musical theater major and he wrote a song. And he made a, a video of it. Oh, yeah. You, you know? me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And another was a biology major who is quite good at poetry mm -hmm. and wrote a poem which was hard-hitting and probably not suitable for a uh, – <laughs> For a for an online discussion, but it was <laughs> be glad to share it with you, you know, behind the scenes. And yeah. there's oh, some have written science fiction stories and all sorts of stuff. And, and, you know, yeah, cool stuff. Well, and I, you know, I know we talk about Mitch and I talk about this frequently. This idea about innovation and science communication, and that you know we have a formal way as scientists that we communicate, but when it comes to speaking to the public, we are both of us are fully supportive of like bringing creativity and innovation to that to make connections with with people and so those types of things stories and art and music um, often are going to have a bigger impact than you know here is my published scientific paper and you know make note of my the <laughs> statistics I use and do you see all these complicated figures that I included people <laughs> just be like no I want the rap song version. Of your scientific paper, <laughs> well, you know, if you're trying to if you're trying to reach the public, the last thing you want to be boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you got to pep it up some way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, well, so um, actually, you and I just shared this yesterday. Um, thinking ahead to the future, there was the recent information that um, some scientific organizations have have approached the new. Uh, um, uh, Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, who is from Connecticut, but scientific organizations are approaching him and requesting that there be a new climate leader in the U.S. Department of Education because of the importance of climate in impacting 
you know, the, the future, how it affects, um, you know, social justice issues as well, and then how that feeds into affecting education, but also how um, it's going to affect every aspect of the future of young people. Um, yeah, you know, how did you perceive that news? <laughs> Oh, that's that's cool. I I would like to be that person, but that's not. Um, I would think also. I would hope that maybe we can scientists, concerned scientists, can approach the new um, commissioner of education, whatever the title is here in Connecticut, um, and about having a little council, you know, associated with his department. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a uh, bill going through the House right now, through the legislature right now, that would mandate climate education in three grades, three through 12, I believe. It almost passed last year. And I've been talking to both of the sponsors, the sponsor in the House and the sponsor in the Senate. And, um, well, they know I exist. We'll see if they if they would like you know if it passes and they would like my 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 help. I would be glad to give it. Mm-hmm. But I like yeah, and cheap. that bill would be to make um, climate education required a requirement in in public right. schools in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and apparently there's some in the whatever the Common Core. I think there's whatever their science curriculum is. There is some bit of of about climate change that isn't currently being isn't being taught in full and mm-hmm. that was the what's the bill is doing is saying you know thou shalt teach mm-hmm. this part as well um yeah. i you know i have a benefit too of being here since the beginning of time that a great <laughs> number of the um local science teachers in high school are my former students yeah and so i do have contacts there and i suspect that you know if i can if i can give them help when the time comes i'm sure they'll ask for it Mm-hmm. So to kind of wrap up, like as someone who thinks about this every day, I think a lot of us <laughs> in, in biology and in science and, and, you know, just regular citizens think about it, but really Mitch's thinking about it daily and um, has, you know, brought focus and attention to it in a way that I think some of us are just too distracted by executing other parts of our lives that we don't always you know, put our minds on to have attention on it. But so someone who thinks about this every single day, um, you know, what gives you hope for the future when so much of the data can feel very dire? <laughs> the, the, what gives me hope is that the, uh, the, the students entering college and the students who are in their twenties have more, um, they have more motivation to fix it than the old folks do. I consider myself one of the old folks, you know, because they, I think they feel it in a more immediate fashion than the people who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s uh, do, um, because we're used to seeing the world in a different way. And we're so, we're used to telling ourselves the um, comforting, you know, comforting lies, comforting um, explanations that, you know, maybe it wasn't our fault. Maybe we don't have to do anything about it. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, we'll, you know, some engineer will come along with some great gizmo that'll fix it all and all that. Whereas the young students, I mean, the young folks are coming and looking at it in the face and they're doing so bravely, more bravely than the old 
folks who are basically not being very brave about this, most of us. And my, you know, I have a three-year-old grandson, so I, you know, I see him and I see the future and I want him to have a future. And, um, and so I've, as I posted on my Facebook page, I'm determined to stand and face the coming storm. And I, I cannot not do otherwise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's admirable because even in a science building in a biology department, um, you know, while all of us are concerned, we don't give it, you know, the proper attention just because, you know, we're teaching, you know, basic biology, teaching other well, things. And so it's, you're, it's as, you're getting, you're getting tenure, you're getting promotion. <laughs> and I'm past the point where I have to worry about that stuff. I can do what's, ne what's necessary. <laughs> no, uh, you better cut that part out. I yeah. don't want to say that. <laughs> no, that's actually it speaks to uh, you know the value of tenure, which is that that room for um, you know control over your exploration of um, you know of the things that really matter, and not just having to check off boxes. You know, which is which. There's a purpose to all of that. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. But you know what? I think there is there are more of the faculty outside of science who are, are starting getting religion, quote, quote unquote, about this. And um, it's working its way into some of the humanities courses, philosophy courses. Um, there will be new courses on climate change presented, um, you know, for approval through the process we go through um, that hopefully will be approved in some form. And so there'll be courses from uh, in other in other disciplines looking at it from social sciences or humanities or what have you. And so it won't just be me as a voice crying in the wilderness. And I think that is an excellent thing. So that's interesting. Do you think though will eventually do you think that WCSU might have like a climate a climate change or a climate science minor that would be offered as you're talking about the diversity of courses that are being developed or we could no. do that now if we wanted to mm -hmm. yeah it seems it like would that just be a matter of getting organized with it mm -hmm. and i you know i think those things strategic major minors is something i've been suggesting for a long time and mostly <laughs> i just get you know funny looks um <laughs> And and so I mean there are certain things like you know a a, um, a biology economics major minor combination or you know you can you can or, or biology Spanish whatever you could come up with a zillion of these combinations that you know would make some sense for the right student yeah. and would not require a, a, a nickel more in university resources. Right. And so, you know, in in a condition, in a circumstance where we cannot, you know, uh, expand our programs by adding a lot more people, we can expand our programs by re, you know, building complexity from between and within. Well, I think um, I think our the next you know generation of students as they're entering the workforce, like the the new demands are absolutely, you can't be a singular, you know, you can't just have one discipline. You have to be 
you know, educated enough to address, you know, start, you know, to be flexible because <laughs> you don't know what jobs are going to be out there. And it's, you it's, don't know what the world's going to be like in 20 years. You know, I, yeah. I feel like these kind of things that can help our students to stand out a little bit or have um, a, a creative combination that might not be just the biology major, but have some of these other you know, dimensions to what they quote look like on paper <laughs> in terms of having these interesting minors could be, could be interesting or, and just as much as it could be interesting for a business major to have a climate science minor eventually. Well, yeah. anyway, we are just basically, Paul, you can just take this back to the administration. I think we solved all the recent problems. I think we have given some solutions for climate change here. We have reinvigorated the course offerings the for <laughs> um, I think we're, we're good. I think we can drop the microphone, Pete. I think we're like... <laughs> it's the capstone to our podcast. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I don't know about that, but I, not everyone will be happy. Or, or Not everyone is always happy by what I have to say, but that's okay. That's part of the university, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Mitch, because again, as you said, you're teaching three classes. It's midterms. There's no spring break this week, this year. So everyone's yeah. like in the thick of it. But thanks for and giving And I found that. myself on far too many committees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but thanks for joining and talking, fleshing out this piece of what's going on at WestCon, which I think a lot of people don't realize and I think is a real strength of what we offer here so thank you thank, thank you for inviting me anytime all right now i've downplayed these cicadas a little bit but Rada is really into it and she's going to explain, you know, all her personal reasons as well as all her scientific reasons for loving these cicadas. Continuing in the tradition of her taking over your show. Yes. Let's go to Rada. Well, Rada, some people have told me this is a big deal about the cicadas. Is it really a big deal or not? Just for some bugs coming out of the ground. Uh, well, we're talking about insects, so it's always a big deal. Let's just start there. <laughs> but yeah, cicadas are especially big deal. Um, so we there's several different cicada species, and we have cicadas every year. We have annual cicadas. These are the like the big. They're actually a bigger green cicada, or kind of the common ones that people see. So we have cicadas every year, but then occasionally we get emergence of the periodical cicadas and that's what gets a lot of attention in the news. And so, uh, yes, this summer we're expecting an emergence of one of the broods. And so the way that we track periodical cicada emergence is we know that there are different broods uh, throughout the country. And so there's the groupings geographically of, of different uh, cicadas that will emerge after either 13 years or 17 years. And so what that means is that the immature cicadas have been living underground uh, approximately uh, eight feet, really deep underground. Hmm. Um, they've been living underground for either 13 or 17 years, feeding on tree roots. And then after that period of time, there are triggers. What, as far as we know, they have sort of an internal molecular clock that's like, 
keeping track of events that are happening above ground, probably via the trees, some kind of chemical signal in the trees that allows them to sort of track years. And when they get to either that 13 or 17 point, they're like, oh, time to come out. And so then they uh, all will emerge in a mass emergence at the same time. And so this event occurs only every 13 or 17 years in the various geographic areas where the different broods are. And so there's been a lot of excitement about this next summer. Um, and I've seen it in the news for Connecticut, but actually our brood uh, is not emerging this year. So our brood, um, I've got the map pulled up. Um, our last big brood emergence was 2013 <laughs> in Connecticut. Uh, but so this brood that everyone's getting excited about is brood 10. And it's actually mostly gonna be in Pennsylvania, Delaware, um, kind of more that direction. Um, and then what's interesting about brood 10 is it has a little bit of this Eastern distribution. And then it also has uh, a lot of distribution in Indiana and Ohio as well. So there's sort of a gap in between, but um, we know that this particular year in those locations, we're gonna get the emergence of, this happens to be one of the 17 year broods. Um, so in those locations, they're really excited because we're, um, you know, they haven't seen them for 17 years. So I think that's what makes it um, exciting when they, when, you know, you're in a region that's getting a brood emergence. Um, of course, I highly recommend people drive over to Pennsylvania and, and try to go to a, a park or something and check this out. Uh, Are you going to do that? Um, I would like to, yeah, I, I, I definitely would like to, um, you know, all timing dependent, but um, it's, uh, it's a cool, so when I started, I, I always remember the year that I started my graduate program in entomology, because it was 1997, the year of the 17 year periodical cicada brood emergence in Iowa. <laughs> and so I feel it's very appropriate that I launched my entomological training um, in the same year of this massive entomological event. It was a, a very cool way to start out. They should um, call it the Rada Krell Brood. Uh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> no, I have not done that yet. Um, yeah, no, so it's, it's uh, but, you know, so have you both seen do you have you do you remember emergent like actually I remember our 2013 one was not really in our area so much you had to kind of go out to um, you know a, a park or so you know national like more like a, a state park or something it wasn't like in every backyard yeah um, I was I remember being disappointed about that because I was hoping that I would see them all and I don't think I saw any of them yeah, when when I was in Iowa in ninety back in ninety seven, <laughs> um, it you would just drive down the street of a neighborhood and it was deafening. Like you really? could you could you couldn't talk to the person next to you in the car if the windows were rolled down because it was so loud. Um, and actually, I thought I could play. Do you want to hear some cicadas now? Yes, yes. Yeah, so I pulled some up. Um, there's a great website called Cicada Mania, of course. Um, <laughs> And if you're if you're really excited about Brood 10, you can get Brood 10 T-shirts and coffee mugs, and you know this is really you get your Cicada Mania Brood 10 gear. Um, so, so cicadas. Um, so it's primarily the males that are making most of the sounds. They're trying to bring in the females, and they have something on the side of their bodies called a temple organ. It kind of looks like the you know like the 
like the skin on a drum, right? But it's underneath their wings on the side of the body. And um, they can do different things with that to make different sounds. They can also do different things with their wings to make sounds as well. Hmm. And, um, and actually, so it's primarily the males that are calling for the females, but also the, um, the females can sort of click their wings by kind of um, doing different things with their wings to kind of say like, oh, hey, I heard you, you know, so they can, um, can respond. But just for example, so um, like the, the brood that is common in our area, brood two, um, this is, for example, what the, the courting call of one of the male species. Um, that's the other thing to know about the periodical cicadas. There's, uh, there's seven different species. So there, we have these different broods, and the brood just means the timing at which they emerge. And then there are different species of periodical cicada that comprise those broods. And sometimes there's multiple species in a brood, or there can be, um, you know, it just depends on, on the region. Hmm. Okay, so is everyone really excited to hear this? Yes. Did I build it up enough? Okay, let's do this. Here we go. So this is uh, the magic. So this species is Magis cicada cassini, and this is a courting call. Okay. sounds like something out of Africa. Yeah. Well, so just to contrast, so we, as I said, we also have our annual cicadas that also are calling. And uh, this isn't the exact species from our area, but um, I will just play a little bit of this one. This is an annual cicada. And to me, that's just like summer, right? Yes. Like yep. that's just like the sound of summer. I love um, the cicadas around here when they can leave the windows open and you hear the cicadas. Yes, yeah, the cicadas and the katydids and the tree crickets and all of the other things that are making sounds. It really does sometimes have like a jungle feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, I'm going to play one other call for you because just like, um, the, so like I said, the cicadas can make different sounds. So the same species will make different sounds for different reasons. So I played for you the courting call of the male uh, periodical cicada that's found in our area. And this is the distress call. Okay, here we go. Kind of sounds like someone's being electrocuted. (laughs) (laughs) Or somebody's eating it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's the the distress call. And then, of course, same species, we have the chorus when we have lots of them all um, calling at the same time. And, of course, this is advantageous for all of them because they can, you know, magnify their sound and really bring in the females. So here's the chorus. And there's like lots of them out there making yeah. their uh, making their calls. So, um, yeah, so it is exciting. They're coming out again. I, uh, you know, don't want to drive too much tourism out of our great state of Connecticut, <laughs> but I do encourage, um, you know, keeping an eye on the brood. So again, you can Google brood maps. You can Google again. This um, cicada mania page is really great, loaded with information. Um, 
to uh, to keep an eye on what's going on. Um, there'll probably be you know some places where you can see where the best places to go are to see them. Um, and so what's so our annual cicadas are out a little later in the summer, so like mm. July later. Um, the periodical cicadas are earlier, so May we might there might be some coming out May and June. So um, you know about the time the semester will be ending, everyone. You know, we're increasing our vaccination rates. People are excited to like get out and see the world again. And what better way to get out and explore the world than having your first adventure be entomological? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to no try problem. to do that. Are you going to get your kids to go with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. so, yeah, totally. Yeah, so we're hitting, hitting the road to find the cicadas. But if you can find a good spot, it really is astonishing where... I remember there were places, again, back in 97, <laughs> there were places <laughs> where in this state park, you could not walk without stepping on one, mm. <laughs> which it was just like the ground was covered with cicadas. Um, and, and don't feel too bad about that, right? Like this is a strategy. They're having a mass emergence so they can find, they can find mates. Um, and, and really, the adults are alive for a very short period of time. They want to mate. They're going to lay their eggs. The females lay their eggs. Um, they kind of scrape a little piece of tree back, and they lay their eggs into twigs in the tree. Um, and then later in the summer, those uh, nymphs will come out of the eggs, and then they just drop to the ground, and then they'll burrow deep into the ground, and we won't see them again for another 17 years. So. How long does it take them to get down eight feet? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure, but knowing entomologists, somebody has, has figured that out. Somebody has timed it. Yeah. Uh, you have given us a lot about cicadas. How do we know so much about cicadas, of all things? Uh, well, because of awesome entomologists, of course. <laughs> Again, so cicadas are a conspicuous insect, right? Like they are large. You often find the, the shed skins of cicadas, mm -hmm. like hanging on trees, like kids find those all the time, the, the exuvium. Um, so I think, you know, it's uh, when things are big and conspicuous, they're often more likely to be studied because, you know, people, it, because when you, what is the first step of the scientific process? Observation. When something big is, <laughs> is, is big and conspicuous, you're more likely to like have an observation. And then that observation provokes a question. And so then that's where your research comes in. So, um, you know, the likelihood of people having studied cicadas is, is pretty good from mm. that point of view. Um, and they're cool. <laughs> they're just, <laughs> um, a, a cicada fun fact so in some places people eat cicadas like mm. in um, a, a good colleague of mine has a photo of when he was in Africa um, he did a, a, a sabbatical in Africa and um, some uh, young children were using bows and arrows to like hunt for cicadas mm, and um, supposedly cicadas taste something like cooked asparagus I have eaten various insects but not cicadas so uh, How come some are go underground for 13 or seven years and then we have these annual ones? Why don't they, do they live in the ground during the winter too? Or how does that work? Yeah, they're also underground as well. Yeah, then until they come out and emerge. And usually when we're finding those like shed skins on trees, those are our annual cicadas. And again, mm -hmm. there's several species of them. Um, and, you know, just uh, different strategies, right? And, and so the, the 
thought, thinking on the periodical cicadas is it has something to do with like our periods of glaciation over hmm. the years and you know how some of these you know how to keep a distinctive population is to make sure that your timing of emergence is the same and so there's some advantages to kind of having distinct populations if you want to um, make sure that your genes are passed on to the next generation so um, just some you know like a adaptive evolutionary benefit to that strategy but then you know then other species are going to have a different strategy we're going to just put out fewer but we'll do it every year you know and so if everybody has a different strategy then that tends to maximize survivorship for each species mm -hmm. it's crazy yeah mm -hmm. yeah so are you going to drive to pennsylvania this summer Yes. The cicada, or this spring, really, May, May, June. Yeah, I'm going to go down, take okay. the show on the road. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear the, the thing that's so loud that you can't uh, talk to each other in the car. Right. I think that'd well, be cool. You know, and people always ask, like, oh, my gosh, is this killing the trees? Um, you know, the trees might look a little ragged after a cicada emergence, but it really does not kill the trees. So they're not considered pests. Um, occasionally, let's say you had just planted a new tree in your yard this spring, um, you know, a young tree could potentially be killed by a lot of cicadas, but um, it's really overall considered more of a benefit for the trees because it's sort of like they get pruned a little bit, they get hmm. kind of a natural pruning uh, from the cicadas, um, and they're, they're really just feeding on the, the sap from the tree. So they have what's called piercing sucking mouth parts, both as nymphs and adults. And so they're piercing into the plant and sucking out juice. Um, and so the trees can, you know, they can withstand it. Again, they might be a little, look a little ragged or weakened at the end of an emergence, but um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, how long does an emergence last? Um, well, just like usually around a month or so, you know, they're mm. not all coming out on the exact same day. There's kind of a spread of a few days, but um, yeah, about roughly a month, a month or so um, within a particular area, within the whole brood area, you know, it might be a couple of months, but um, yeah, so they're, so yeah, I, I think um, we'll have to just keep an eye on like, there'll be reports of like the good spots, uh, usually, mm -hmm. you know, usually like state parks are a good place to go. Um, more wooded. That's such an, a different way of life than we have, though. They spend most of their, all their life underground, and they come out for a month. Mm -hmm. They don't get to see their children grow up. <laughs> it's weird. Most insects do not see their children grow uh, up. <laughs> most adult insects are short-lived. They uh, huh. Their goal is to lay eggs, and then there's no reason for them to continue, so... <laughs> <laughs> that's Unlike the lesson us. of life oh, yeah. no they're smart right they're in their children can like live on their own we've our children are like oh you gotta like teach me how to walk and like feed me and then you gotta educate me and, you know, send me to college insurance. let me move yeah. back into your house as an adult and you know. yeah <laughs> oh you should provide shelter for me for 35 years <laughs> Insects are like, see ya, I'm done. <laughs> I work here, it's done. <laughs> so. There are some humans like that too, <laughs> but we frown on them. That's yeah, interesting. Yes. It's considered not good mm. parenting. <laughs> so. so 
that's the that's the cicada news. Um, can't really think. I think those are the the key the key points that uh, we can look forward to. Yeah. Hey, that was a great lesson. I loved hearing all about that. And you'll be back for more soon, right? Yes, I would love to be back mm -hmm. for more soon. Whatever you want. Hey, whatever you want to talk about insects. All right, let's talk about some of the upcoming uh, stuff, Paul. Yeah, well, Accepted Students Day is a big deal, especially if you're a high school senior and you've been accepted here. You should show up for this and with your parents, too, and find out what it's all about. And then sign on the dotted line and hand over a check. <laughs> It'll be fun next semester. It'll be a real college experience. Yeah, finally. Yeah. It'll make your high school senior year feel like a, a lost era. This will be, be not only fun, you'll learn a lot too, right? Because yeah. you'll study. And then maybe we can stop talking about it. <laughs> what uh, don't we talk about then? I will have to start a whole new show. <laughs> uh, all right. So on April 6th, uh, there's a career fair from 3 to 6. That's virtual. And also from 4 to 5 is another Scholars in Action. So we've heard from some of those Scholars in Action. And here's a few more. Yeah, that's right. And we are going to have more Scholars in Action on our show. Uh, Clubs Carnival is April 7th from 11 to 4. So that is, I think it's on the quad, but it could be all over Midtown. So just be, be prepared because they have to spread it out to get as many people there as we can. So, But that's, yeah. uh, that's April 7th from 11 to 4. The other big you might see the the WXCI uh, DJs out on the quad with them, trying to uh, make people aware of their radio exploits. They're feeling like nobody knows WXCI is there, even though it's the most powerful uh, broadcast signal in Danbury. Nice, yeah. Uh, and then the the other biggie that's coming up on the tenth is the BSU Chocolate Lounge, which is a big deal every oh, year. They yeah. get lots of people come in, and that is in Ives Concert Hall, starting at eight. Um, on what day? On April tenth. Yeah. That's good. So, it's always good. The Chocolate Lounge is always a good show. Everybody has a good time, and you should go. Everybody can go. Well, uh, attendance is I mean, limited because no, of students. COVID yeah. stuff, yes. Yeah, so I don't know exactly how that's working, but I'm sure if you contact BSU, they'll have information for you. You're right. Not everybody can go. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll talk about some more of the upcoming stuff, but there's... Uh, I know the ACSA is doing Take Me Out and Show Me Love. That's coming up. I'm trying to think of stuff that's that's right on my radar. And what's then, on the uh, what's the ASCA? The Afro African Caribbean Student Association. Oh, yeah. And then the BSU and the ACSA together are doing a fashion show at the end of April. Um, that'll be back in Ives Concert Hall. I think we've talked. That's about That's a big that. deal too. That's a huge yeah. thing. Yeah, lots of people show up for that. So, and most of these, if not all of them, are going to be live streamed as well. So just keep an eye on your. Uh, on their, you know, Facebooks and Instagrams and all that stuff for, for details about that. We'll get that out when we can. I believe our own Jacqueline Bonomo said she was a model in the fashion show one year. Did she? I didn't remember that. I think she oh, said cool. that. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's that's kind of it for upcoming stuff. As always, keep your eye on the on the what's on it. WCSU. 
in the MyWCSU app. And uh... yeah, there's stuff happening every day, like at the fitness zone and stuff yeah. like that. So you should uh, make yourself aware of what's going on and what you can take advantage of here at Western Connecticut State University. Yeah. And, uh, and for those of you who celebrate happy non-Greek Easter this weekend, <laughs> <laughs> I've got about a month to worry about mine. So, Oh, yeah. And a month to prepare, right? Yeah, and everything, all the candy and stuff goes on sale uh, next week. So we get all kinds of cheap <laughs> stuff, which is great. Don't you roll out the bathtub and start making bread in it? <laughs> yeah, my, my mother-in-law makes like 30 loaves of bread in, the, in a baby bathtub. Dyes all the eggs red in this pot that they've been using for you know fifty years and stuff. So it's it's a it's a real big deal. Yeah, but we'll talk more about that yeah, as, we, as get we get closer. Closer, sure. It, so you don't get to celebrate non Greek Easter. Uh, we I do because I grew up Catholic. So we my family still does a little bit of a little bit of their Easter thing. But uh, yeah, you still get some candy. Yeah, we usually wait for the wait for the cheap candy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That sounds fun. And uh, we'll see you all next week. This is at WCSU. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and that's Pete Puccio. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Folby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at WCSU.edu. Thanks for listening.